The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's nothing about a policy that binds a corrupt president, and that's the danger. Another corrupt president can easily ignore any policy, can also ignore any statute, not lawfully, but practically. And so what Mr. Garland is doing is reiterating the expectations of the Department of Justice and the longstanding practices of the Department of Justice. But in no way uh, would it bind uh, another President Trump. In fact, it doesn't even bind President Biden, other than uh, that he seems to be a good and decent man, understands the norms, understands the historical practices. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, August 6th, 2021. It's been a busy few weeks at the Justice Department. There was a major indictment of the chair of the former president's inaugural committee. There have been new policies promulgated on subpoenas to media organizations and on Justice Department White House contacts. There's been a lot of other stuff going on, too. A decision not to defend a member of Congress for his role in the January 6th uprising, for example. And there are questions about what positions the Justice Department is going to take as the 1-6th Committee begins its work. To talk about it all, we got a heck of a group together in the Virtual Jungle Studio. Former Justice Department officials Carrie Cordero, now of the Center for New American Security, and Chuck Rosenberg, who served at both DOJ and FBI. And I joined, too. Hosting the episode in the Virtual Jungle Studio is Scott R. Anderson. It's the Lawfare Podcast, August 6th. Unfinished business at the Department of Justice. Ben, let me start with you. We saw a significant development come out in the last week, or let me a little over a week now, in that we saw a major indictment drop against a figure closely associated with former President Trump, alleging not just involvement with certain nefarious activities around the campaign or anything else, but also involving a foreign power, a major foreign ally, but one that has very active influence operations relating to the United States, the United Arab Emirates. Tell us a little bit about the Tom Barrick indictment and the what makes it a novel, notable development that we should be paying attention to. Yeah, so I actually think this is a bit of an undercovered story. The Tom Barrick indictment alleges, and of course, Mr. Barrack and his co-defendants are innocent until proven guilty. This is a substantial document. It's 45 pages. It has a lot of facts alleged in it. And what they amount to is that the entire time he was advising the Trump campaign and then running the Trump inaugural committee, He was also working on behalf of the United Arab Emirates in a fashion undisclosed to the Justice Department. And the significance of this, and I think the sort of jaw-dropping part of the indictment, is that the government actually alleges that through Barak, the United Arab Emirates on at least one occasion edited the text of Donald Trump's speeches as a candidate. That is, a foreign power 
had access to drafts of a presidential candidate's speeches, made suggestions for changes to those speeches, and got them adopted by an unregistered foreign agent who was also moonlighting on behalf of the campaign. This isn't, of course, collusion with Russia, but it sure is operations in conjunction with uh, senior officials, the f- officials aren't identified, but it's pretty clear who they are, of a foreign government up to and including rewriting a presidential candidate's speeches. So, you know, I, I don't kid myself anymore that these things will make any political difference at all. But I do think for those who have been concerned about you know, foreign influence in Trump world, it is a particularly vivid example of somebody who was both advising the Trump campaign and advising and operating a foreign government on how to interact with that campaign and influence that campaign. So this question of foreign influence has been a major recurring theme of the past few years, particularly in the aftermath of the Mueller investigation, which centered on these foreign influence questions in relation to Russia, particularly. And one of the main tools we see discussed in the context of this is the Foreign Agents Registration Act, an administrative process by which people representing foreign governments and foreign institutions of various stripes are supposed to be registering with the Justice Department, acknowledging their role and failure to do so can carry with it an array of penalties. That's not what we see being applied here. This is under a, a different statute. Chuck, tell us a little bit about how this fits in with efforts to kind of reinvigorate the FARA process, if it does, and also why the Justice Department may have been pursuing a different tack in this case. Sure. Well, there are two different statutes at play under FARA, the Foreign Agents Registration Act, found in Title 22. You have to register if you are representing a foreign entity, a foreign business, a foreign person, and the like. Barrick was charged under a Title 18 offense for being an unregistered agent of a foreign government. So they're analogous. They're not identical. Being an unregistered agent of a foreign government carries a higher statutory maximum penalty of incarceration, 10 years. Farah, I believe, is five. But you know, the funny thing about this, or the odd thing about this, Scott, is that it's so easily avoided. It's okay to represent a foreign government. It's okay to represent a foreign entity. You just have to register, right? The way you avoid becoming a bank robber is by not robbing a bank. The way you avoid being charged with being an unregistered agent of a foreign government is by registering. This is all about transparency. Everything Ben just described, the influence of the United Arab Emirates over a a speech uh, given by a candidate for president of the United States, that would have been essentially okay. It would have been lawful uh, had everyone known who Barack was working for because he had filed with the Department of Justice as he was required to do. He didn't do it. You know, every time you read an article in the Washington Post about Amazon, uh, they tell you that the guy who founded Amazon, Jeff Bezos, owns the Washington Post. That's good for the newspaper, that's good for the reporter, and it's good for the reader. You can draw whatever conclusions you want from the relationship, but the relationship is out there for everyone to see. And so couple of lessons here. One is easily avoid criminal liability by registering, but also good for the Justice Department for beginning to proceed more regularly under either Title 18 or Title 22 offenses for failing to register uh, if you're representing a foreign entity or a foreign government. These were statutes that were long ignored. In fact, back in 2016, the Department of Justice Inspector General had issued a report criticizing the department for not using these statutes more frequently. Everyone attributes the uh, uptick to the Mueller team. I think that's only partially true. They certainly brought charges under under the Farris statute, but I think the Department of Justice had recognized before Mueller became special counsel that they needed to do more here. Carrie, let me turn to you. You know, this story obviously it- 
part of the narrative is this question of authorities and DOJ policy and prosecution. But what else is there that we should be considering here? What does it tell us about uh, not just the Justice Department, their approach to these things, but the White House political campaigns, foreign influence, and, and the role these things are playing in kind of the broader policy and political ecosystem? What are the lessons we should be taking away from this, perhaps more on a policy front or a normative front? Well, first, as it relates to the Trump administration in particular, uh, even in the early stages, because these activities date back to the campaign, was just the a fundamental problem, which was corruption at the level at which foreign influence was able to influence either the campaign or later the administration in a way that completely bypassed institutions. So the type of activity that was going on, um, as alleged in the indictment, is really that of a lobbyist, somebody who is working on behalf of the uh, foreign entity to achieve their objectives. The language of the statute in this case is that it the person agrees to operate under the direction or control of a foreign government official. And the indictment is uh, full of, of statements that support that. For example, in one case, the foreign individual with whom Barack was in touch responds and he says, our friends are extremely happy and proud of our relationship with you beyond expectations. In other places, uh, the associate of Mr. Barrick, Mr. Grimes, acknowledges that the things he was doing uh, were at your, quote, at your direction, directed towards the foreign government official. So there's a lot of strong evidence that shows in this particular case how these individuals, Barrack and Grimes, were, were operating at the direction of a foreign entity. But what it, what it shows is that how easy it was. I think the, pro, you know, the problem from the governance perspective is that it was so easy for them to bypass either the, you know, what should have been policy processes that even took place in the campaign. And then certainly once uh, the former president became the president, the institutions of the State Department. And that was just indicative of the way that that administration acted was that uh, there were back channels, there were family members, there were, you know, someone like Tom Barrick, people who were influencing what should have been policies of the United States government in a way that were influenced by either individual interests or, in this case, a foreign government interest. I also think there's another significance to this indictment, which is a little bit more institutional with respect to the Justice Department. A lot of people have operated on the assumption over the last six months that the still waters at the Justice Department in terms of public accountability for Trump-era conduct indicated that there wasn't much going on. And, uh, you know, there was a momentary interruption of that thesis at the time of the uh, execution of the search warrant against Rudy Giuliani. But by and large, we haven't seen a lot of action on the surface of the department other than for you know, a very large amount of conduct related to one six perpetrators themselves. And this uh, indictment is a reminder that sometimes still waters run deep and that there may be a lot going on beneath the surface that you don't notice uh, or have no basis to notice until the moment, you know, the sea monster uh, erupts from the water I had completely lost track of the Tom Barrack investigation. I knew there was one at one point, and then this indictment came out, and it was frankly a bit of a shocker to me. And I, as I said before, don't quite know why it didn't get more attention than it did. And it makes me wonder how many other such investigations there are that are kind of percolating along uh, some of them we know about, the investigation of Matt Gates, the investigation of Rudy Giuliani, but some of them we probably don't know about or have forgotten about. And I wonder if there may be quite a lot of accountability activity with respect to Trump-connected figures beneath the surface that we really will not know about until the day they come to fruition. Well, let's turn from questions of inappropriate foreign influence to some questions of potentially inappropriate 
domestic influence because we had another big story break in the past few days, and that is some records indicating discussions happening between the White House and the highest levels of the Justice Department in the days following the 2020 election, specifically relating to the validity of the, of the election results at the time and engagements by President Trump and by figures in his White House urging a particular Justice Department to take a particular position, uh, which it appears to have resisted. Carrie, tell us a little bit about this story and what makes it so remarkable. So this pertains to the substantial, persistent effort by the former president to undo and frankly overturn the election of 2020. What we're learning now is that he had personally and persistently pressured the Justice Department, including the acting attorney general Rosen, Jeffrey Rosen, to declare that the election was corrupt and to assist in his efforts to uh, try to overturn the election results in Georgia in particular. And so what is coming out now as a result of investigation by the House Oversight Committee is notes that a deputy to the assistant attorney general, so uh, Richard Donahue, that he had taken, the senior Justice Department official had taken notes indicating the pressure that was being placed on the senior levels of the Justice Department. So number one, it can these this recent reporting that's coming out from information obtained by the House Oversight Committee is simply confirming what was fairly evident, which was that the president really was trying to undo the results of the election, which culminated in the events of January 6th, in my view. And second, that the pressure was specific and persistent on the senior levels of the Justice Department. So in other words, he was trying to corrupt the Justice Department for the means of undermining the election outcome. And three, that there were senior Justice Department officials at the time who resisted that effort to corrupt their institution. So that that last piece is good. The part that I am still trying to digest is the fact that there was actually an impeachment proceeding. There was an impeachment vote and there were no witnesses called in that. And based on the notes that are now coming to light, it sure would have been useful to have witnesses such as senior Justice Department officials who could attest to the corrupt influence that was put on them. I completely agree with Carrie. It's um, difficult for me to understand how a trial or a trial-like proceeding, an impeachment, can be conducted without witnesses. I was a prosecutor for a long time. Uh, I had witnesses in every case. There's no way to prosecute a case without witnesses. But, you know, uh, Carrie, we saw in the first impeachment proceeding a bunch of really compelling witnesses, and it all amounted to a bunch of nothing in the end, because the other thing you need are fair and impartial jurors, uh, and I don't think we had enough of those. I agree with you, Carrie, that we absolutely should have had witnesses in the perfect world. We would have had witnesses. Uh, I worried at the time uh, that if the impeachment managers that tried to call witnesses, it would have been tied up in the courts. And and by the way, tying it up in the courts may not have been meritorious, but it doesn't take a lot of merit to get something tied up in the court. You know, in the end, I think we still are left with the problem that some number of jurors were not unbiased, uh, would not have voted to uh, convict and remove the president regardless of the number or quality of the witnesses. You're quite right. The stuff coming out now is compelling. It's also not that surprising, unfortunately. I hate to say that, but it seems like exactly the thing that our former president would do. I'm glad that there was institutional resistance at the Department of Justice. I'm also not terribly surprised by that uh, because whether folks come up you know, uh, through the ranks uh, or they drop in as politicals, there's still a strong institutional pull at the Department of Justice. Uh, and with Mr. Donahue and Ms., with Mr. Rosen, we saw it uh, in action. Yeah, so just a quick factual point. Actually, in the first impeachment trial, there were no witnesses either. 
there were only witnesses in the House impeachment proceeding that led to the trial, which then had, just like the second trial, no witnesses. In the second impeachment, there weren't even witnesses in the House impeachment proceeding. There were merely the House proceeded on the public record and the Senate then proceeded uh, with its less than partial impartial jury to acquit based on the public record. And of course, the danger when you do that is then you find out later that there were uh, important facts that you were unaware of, like that the president was corruptly trying to tell the attorney general, you know, just you just announce the things uh, the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me. I agree with both Chuck and Carrie that there is nothing surprising about this material, given what we already knew about what the president was saying publicly and, frankly, saying about Rosen and before him, Attorney General Barr. It actually would have been surprising if he hadn't been saying similar things to them in private. And I think the you know, the danger, and we'll talk about this as we talk about some of the policies that the department has adopted, is that, you know, a lot of the department's policies and traditions are based on the idea that presidents will respect its institutional autonomy. And what Trump showed over four years, including in this episode, was that he doesn't. And that really raises the question to me whether in the long run, these policies that rely on that assurance are actually sustainable. Well, let's turn to those policies briefly. And Carrie, I'm going to come to you on these because we have seen almost simultaneous with the story going public, a set of policies, one at the Justice Department and one at the White House that actually applies to the Justice Department and at a range of other executive branch agencies that is intended to address not necessarily this specific incident, but kind of the broader efforts to influence the Justice Department and potentially other agencies that many saw as a hallmark in many ways of the Trump administration, particularly in the post-2020 election period. And these are policies aimed at limiting and restricting how the White House and executive branch agencies interact. A pretty novel measure, um, not by no means unprecedented, but certainly a, a step towards trying to create some sort of more insulation, independence, and resilience of an independent Justice Department and other executive branch agencies. Tell us a little bit more about these policies and the extent to which they can and maybe can't help curb some of the problematic conduct like this Rosen story. Sure. Before we get into the policies, though, I, I do want to just make one other note to follow up a little bit on on the Rosen story in particular, which is that I, I completely take the point that witnesses in the impeachment trial probably would have been litigated. And so that timing wise, you know, I understand the circumstances around that. I do think it raises a separate question about the obligations of public officials to speak publicly under the circumstances. So one of the things after uh, on the day of and immediately following January 6th um, that was somewhat surprising to me was the relative silence of the acting attorney general. And I do think in light of what we now are learning was going on behind the scenes and then the events of that day that I thought it at the time and I think it more now as I see what was going on behind the scenes with these uh, releases of these memos that it, it perhaps could have affected the the national conversation had the acting attorney general spoken publicly and, and revealed then what had been going on behind the scenes as opposed to now this coming out through just reporting based on what the oversight committee is receiving. But but moving forward, Scott, to the to the memo. So this is the memo that the attorney general issued on January 21st. And then there's a companion memo from the White House counsel also, excuse me, July 21st, and also a memo from the White House counsel of July 21st pertain to contacts, approved contacts or prohibited contacts between the Justice Department and the White House. I think of these as basically the Biden administration's how to run a government set of memos. 
And what it does is it establishes what the rules are and the way that people are supposed to conduct their business. It basically memorializes what is appropriate policy between the Justice Department and the White House, particularly regarding criminal investigative or civil investigative matters, to insulate career uh, employees at the Justice Department and to insulate prosecutorial or litigation decisions from improper political influence. And so when it comes to those types of matters, the attorney general's memo was quite restrictive, laying out that it's only him or the deputy attorney general who should be in contact with the White House counsel or a deputy White House counsel about those members. So that's quite restrictive. There is more flexibility on the national security side because there are matters of national security, whether it's in uh, the counterintelligence space or counterterrorism or related matters, where as a substantive matter, not a prosecutorial matter, the White House has national security responsibilities. The president has national security responsibilities. The National Security Council needs to be able to coordinate with their Justice Department counterparts who work closely with the intelligence community um, to be able to handle national security matters. So there does there is some additional flexibility when it comes to the national security side. But basically, these memos are memorializing what should be the appropriate way to insulate the Justice Department from political influence. That all being the correct way of operating, I would say that I don't know that these types of things actually would have prevented or restricted a corrupt president from influencing the Justice Department as took place during the prior administration. Chuck, I want to turn to you on this because you obviously have spent a good part of your career operating on the seam of political leadership and career law enforcement personnel. So I want to get your reaction to this, but I also want to ask you a little bit about the kind of meta strategy that Attorney General Garland is pursuing here. These are guidelines in place that are good for this administration, but obviously part of this is an effort to establish or maybe arguably even reestablish norms and practices that will influence future administrations as well. This is kind of consciously reviving a practice that dated back to Civiletti and then uh, Attorney General Civiletti in the 1970s. And then, you know, it was kind of points back to that as a point of reference saying, we're kind of trying to bring this back as a practice. How can one administration most effectively establish these guidelines to make them probably not binding, that seems almost legally impossible, but more compelling on subsequent administrations. I will note this particular memorandum says the justice manual, kind of like the quasi-regulatory guidelines for the Justice Department is going to be amended to reflect these guidelines. But is there more this administration, Attorney General Garland, should be looking to do to make these more compelling moving forward? Yeah, great question, Scott. So a couple of things in response. First, I, I do think the the right word is reestablish when we're talking about the contacts policy between uh, the White House and the Department of Justice. The fact that Garland reiterated, reestablished the policy is a very good thing. I completely agree with Carrie. Uh, I actually think the policy is well crafted. I think the exceptions for uh, national security matters, counterintelligence and counterterrorism are appropriate. But all of this turns in the final analysis on the goodwill of men and women at both ends of the phone, uh, you know, in the White House and at the Department of Justice to abide this. The Trump administration was the exception. It wasn't the rule. Uh, The rule, which I had lived under as a career prosecutor and later as a political appointee in the Department of Justice, was that Nobody talks to each other, with very few exceptions, Uh, the AG, the Deputy Attorney General, one or two other officials, uh, depending on the issue. Uh, But other than that, all communications are channeled through those people from the Department of Justice uh, and to and through White House counsel and occasionally national security staff uh, in the White House, depending on the issue. There's nothing about a policy that binds a corrupt president, and that's the danger. Another corrupt president, and you know, God knows, I, I hope we never see the likes of this again, can easily ignore any policy, can also ignore any statute, not lawfully, but practically. And so what Mr. Garland is doing is reiterating the expectations of the Department of Justice and the longstanding practices of the Department of Justice, but in no way 
uh, would it bind uh, another President Trump? In fact, it doesn't even bind President Biden, other than uh, that he seems to be a good and decent man, understands the norms, understands the historical practices, and strikes me as someone unlikely to color outside of the lines with or without a policy. Ben, I know you've been doing some research and digging into the evolution of Justice Department's policies like this. Give us a little more context on this context policy. Where does it come from? Where is it rooted in past Justice Department practice? And where do those prior practices begin to fall apart that might provide some lessons about for the future of this policy? Yeah, so uh, this is a matter on which uh, Merrick Garland has some considerable background, and he referred to it at the time of his nomination to be attorney general back in the fall. Uh, He said, in front of the president-elect and the vice president, uh, my very first job after serving as a judicial law clerk was to work as a special assistant to then attorney general Ben Civiletti. Ed Levy and Griffin Bell, the first attorneys general appointed after Watergate, had enunciated the norms that would ensure the department's adherence to the rule of law. Attorney General Civiletti undertook to write their work of crafting those norms into written policies. These policies included guaranteeing the independence of the department from partisan influence, regulating communications with the White House, etc., etc. And what Garland did not say, but that I believe is true, is that he actually drafted the contacts memo on behalf of Ben Civiletti. So when he was a young assistant to the attorney general, I mean, it's a, this memo, I think, is, is kind of reestablishing a norm that he played a sort of junior kind of support role in helping to promulgate in the first place. I think with both of these policies that are reflected in the in attorney general's memos, this and the reporter's policy, there is a, a, a bit of a catch-22, which is reflected in Chuck's remarks, which is that, you know, it's designed to prevent corrupt or apparently corrupt communications regarding investigative matters but it cannot restrict the actions of a truly corrupt individual. And so if, you know, President Nixon wants to pick up the phone and call John Mitchell and direct the way investigations are to proceed against his political enemies, or as he also did, call the head of the criminal division, uh, Peterson, and make his life very difficult, there's really no policy that can stop that. And they have clearly made an effort in both of these policies to try to make them lasting and and not merely the policies of this administration. So in this case, as you rightly note, they've uh, directed the inclusion of these into the justice manual, which makes them harder to change, not impossible to change, but harder to change. But again, the justice manual doesn't bind the president. And then secondly, I think, and more substantially with respect to the compulsory process memo with respect to journalists, the attorney general notably directs the deputy attorney general, Lisa Monaco, to figure out how much of it they can write into regulation, which would be, which would at least require, you know, a future attorney general, if they wanted to defy it, to go through a notice and comment process of of getting rid of the reg. But I do think the point that that Chuck raises is a real head scratcher, which is this is a policy that will be most effective against the already virtuous, uh, or at least the not anti-virtuous. And what value does it really have the next time, you know, if Donald Trump wins again in 2024, it's really hard to see how a contact policy memo from the former attorney general will, will meaningfully restrain him, attractive as the memo is and well done as it is. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ben, just to push back on one point, Am I correct? The justice manual, which is where they're proposing to embed these rules or explore embedding at least parts of them, doesn't actually have to go through formal notice and comment, right? It's actually not a formal regulation, but a type of policy guidance that doesn't have quite that level of barrier as you might associate with a formal regulation. Is that right? What is is the process they have to pursue to change that? Yeah, the uh, there is no notice and comment associated with the justice manual and Therefore, the efforts to codify this have less strength than on the compulsory process for journalists' side, where I believe, and I don't have the memo in front of me, that the direction to the deputy attorney general was actually to promulgate regs to the extent possible. Well, that's actually a great pivot point for us, because I want to come and talk about exactly that journalist policy that you mentioned, because this is another item that we've seen come out in the last few weeks that is a pretty significant departure for this Justice Department, um, certainly from the Trump administration's practices and, and arguably, I think, even from prior administration's practices. And that is the revelation in recent weeks that the Trump administration subpoenaed phone records and certain email records for a number of journalists, primarily related to, I believe, a leaks investigation around Russia, relating to Russia and the Russia story in 2017, maybe going into 2018. This caused a fair amount of stir, and we've seen a Justice Department policy be released around this, basically setting a very, very high bar, if not outright prohibiting, in most cases, these sorts of subpoenas moving forward. Chuck, I know you've been involved with some leak investigations, prosecutions in the past. What is your reaction to this? How big of a development is this in terms of past Justice Department practice, even predating the Trump years? And is it an appropriate fix in your eyes, a calibrated fix towards the sorts of problems that um, this most recent story has brought to the fore? Well, Scott, let me dumb this down a bit, which is my specialty. Leaks of classified information are illegal because Congress said they're illegal. And so typically you have two people who know about the crime, the leaker, the man or woman who held, possessed new classified information and passed it to a journalist and the journalist who published it. Those are the two people who know. And so if you want to prosecute a leak case, those ideally are the two people that you talk to. The first one, the leaker, has lots of good reasons not to talk to you including um, the fact that any truthful statement they provide to you would tend to incriminate them. And so you often don't speak to the subject. And now the journalist apparently is off limits too. And you know, in some ways that distresses me uh, because there really is no way then to make a leak investigation, despite the fact that Congress has made the leak of classified information a crime. If you accept that, If you're okay with that, and I don't mean that facetiously, I'm not trying to be sarcastic. If you're okay with that, then the policy makes perfect sense. We'll just stop doing those cases. That's okay as a policy choice, I guess. But the problem is that we have lots of leaked material being published in lots of uh, different places all of the time. Now, on the other hand, sort of the, the countervailing factor is that we don't successfully make a lot of leak cases. I don't know what the numbers are, but a very, very, very small percentage of leak investigations turn into leak prosecutions because even when we subpoena third-party records, Scott, let's say you write for 
lawfare, you obtained classified information, you published it, and we'd like to know that with whom you spoke. You're a good journalist, Scott, and you probably spoke with you know scores of people, hundreds of people, uh, only one of whom provided the information. And by the way, with every passing day, less and less likely that they did it in some way that's easily discernible. And so what agents and prosecutors end up with is a very, very long list of people who spoke to a journalist who published classified information. And even with all of that investigative work, even with third-party records, which provide additional leads, we almost never make leak prosecutions. Uh, They almost never happen. I mean, you can count on one hand, perhaps two over recent years, the number of successful leak prosecutions. So maybe the Department of Justice policy is just a nod to that. Maybe it's just a recognition that for all of the blowback they get on these cases, uh, they're better off just not making them at all. You know, it still troubles me somewhat because from a pure sort of privacy analysis, records in the hands of third parties are you know typically discoverable. If we needed Ben's bank information or we needed Carrie's phone information and neither of them were journalists, we would just issue a subpoena to Bank of America or to Verizon and we would have it the next day. And so there's nothing sacrosanct about third-party records. Those exist all of the time and are being created continuously. If the Department of Justice has simply decided that they don't want to pursue them anymore, I get it. And I understand that we seldom successfully make leak cases, but it strikes me, uh, and I I think the way I've characterized this before, as uh, a foolish decision, but not a reckless decision. Carrie, let me turn to you for your thoughts on this. Uh, You know, you're somebody who spent a good part of your career in the National Security Division working around very sensitive issues, but has also more recently worked adjacent to, if not a part of, uh, the media industry, uh, certainly as a CNN analyst and in other capacities as as a scholar and and a writer yourself. You know, what is the right balance to be struck here? Does this policy do it? Does it get close to the target? Or is it a bit of a... A more of a capitulation that that might be appropriate, which I which I I will take to be some of Chuck's reservations that this might be going a little too far. So I do think that this new policy is a substantial change from uh, represents a substantial change from prior practice across administrations of of both parties. So if we looked, for example, you know, in the not too far back history of of either the George W. Bush administration or the Barack Obama administration. There were these types of cases from time to time, and and that was to enable the prosecution of individuals who participated in the unauthorized disclosure of classified information, which, as Chuck rightly points out, is a federal crime. So I do think this represents a substantial change. I also do think that the policy itself has a small amount of flexibility. So, for example... There is a part of it that says that the prohibition does not apply to a small category of individuals, such as an agent of a foreign power. I read that to mean that there could be a circumstance where an individual or organization that purports itself to be a media organization, but truly is a shell for a foreign intelligence service, could potentially be accepted from this prohibition, but it would be a very high factual showing within the Justice Department, I think, to be able to rise to that level. The question that I have as a as a former national security practitioner was really the policy process that went into this memo. So there are substantial national security equities, as Chuck described, in play for being able to prosecute these types of cases and to use prosecution as a deterrence for individuals participating in unauthorized disclosure. So what I do wonder, because the president appeared to announce the policy before the memo was issued, and perhaps before the memo was developed, we don't really know, I do wonder about the policy process that went into the development of it. So for example, an alternative way that this could have come out could have been that this type of process would only be used in rare circumstances 
and that the attorney general himself would have to be the person who approved it. One of the questions that I think arose from some of the recent reporting on demands for media information that took place under the Trump administration was at what levels were the were those particular demands being approved and who was knowledgeable in the Justice Department and you know were senior levels knowledgeable or was this just some you know an AUSA doing it on their own or even a US attorney and so there were there were really legitimate questions about the supervisory process that went into these sensitive cases and so an alternative way this memo could have come out that would have i think more uh, reflected more the equities on the national security side would have been, we're going to still use these in some circumstances, but it's going to be a really high approval. It's going to have to go to the attorney general. And I think that also would have been a defensible position. What appeared, and this is from an outside observer's perspective, was that the president announced what the policy would be, and then that became the policy. And so I do think in the current environment where I believe the administration is is trying to govern in a way that uses policy process and doesn't uh, govern by proclamation and then and then the the bureaucracy has to adjust, but that there really is a substantial policy process. I do wonder whether this followed that process and and I think it would be good to know in the future that national security decisions that are being made that really will have some operational impact are done in a way that reflects an interagency process and a policy process. Ben, let me turn to you for a reaction here, because, of course, you are a career journalist, uh, although one, I think, who has been at times in the past critical, a little bit of some in the media's inclination to make very broad assertions of First Amendment rights with very sharp elbows. I think it's a fair characterization. But then also you're in the unique position of having been a journalist and commentator who was targeted by the government in the recent past, but Department of Homeland Security, not under a subpoena that we're aware of, but certainly for a degree of government action that could be providing a chilling effect on on activities um, or certain journalist activities, if not if it didn't actually have that effect on yours. What is your reaction to that? How do you strike the balance here? And and, and is the Justice Department headed in the right direction? Yeah. So a couple of a, f- a few thoughts of, on this in no particular order. First of all, Carrie makes what I think is the key point here that this policy was actually dictated by the president. And in May, President Biden said, absolutely, positively, it's wrong. It's simply, simply wrong about seizing journalists' phone records. And then he followed up saying, when asked if, uh, according to the AP, when asked if Biden would prevent his Justice Department from seeking reporters' phone records, Biden responded, I won't let that happen. And so this is an example of, you know, presidential direction of the Justice Department on a policy matter. And, uh, you know, the distinction that, like, we've been making for years now uh, in the Trump administration is it is perfectly legitimate for the president to direct the Justice Department on matters of policy, including, by the way, matters of investigative policy. It is not legitimate to interfere in individual investigations or in investigative decision making. And so here, I think part of the, the important background is that There is this rash of disclosures of, you know, genuinely unusually aggressive behavior by the Justice Department in the last administration with respect to the press. The president personally responds to that by saying, I'm directing the Justice Department that this isn't to happen anymore. And I think at that point, the die is cast. Now, Chuck will very reasonably respond that does not answer the question of whether this is wise or foolish policy. And I agree with it, with with him to the extent that he responds that way. I think this is a policy that is very likely to stand for exactly as long as the most salient example of leaks in our consciousness are not Edward Snowden, not Julian Assange, not, you know, any of the WikiLeaks kind of stuff, but rather the leaks of abusive behavior by uh, the Trump administration. And 
when we see another Julian Assange situation, another Edward Snowden situation, the temptation to revisit a policy like this will, I think, be very strong. And so I guess my reaction to it is as a short-term repudiation of what the prior administration did and as a implementation of the president's perhaps rash and overbroad statement on the subject, it's a fine example of that. It's a fine implementation of that. I do think it is not likely to be a stable long-term solution to the problem precisely because there are some leaks that are so objectionable and the government has such a compelling interest in punishing and responding to that it will eventually go to the only person other than the leaker or the only entity other than the leaker who has access to the truth about. Chuck? Yeah, Ben, just one slight criticism. If the policy was a repudiation of what the prior administration did, then we have to know the answer to the really important question that Carrie asked, who did it? If this was done at a senior career level, and by this I mean the authorization of media subpoenas uh, during the Trump administration was done at a senior career level, that doesn't trouble me at all. I mean, you still have the underlying question of whether or not we ought to do that sort of thing, but it takes the politics out of it. If, on the other hand, this was directed by political appointees to you know, even scores or to uh, go after political rivals, that's obviously deeply troubling. And then the new policy recently issued becomes an appropriate repudiation. But I don't know that yet. I think Carrie framed the question perfectly. We ought to know that before we decide whether or not we are appropriately repudiating something that happened in the prior administration. But Chuck, if you're the attorney general and the president has publicly repudiated something, rightly or wrongly, publicly said, this is wrong, this is not going to happen under my administration, isn't at that point the question that you're confronting how to implement the president's policy rather than what the optimal policy is? No, I agree, Ben. You're stuck at that point. Uh, And I, I thought that President Biden's remarks were intemperate and not particularly thoughtful, and that the department reacted in perhaps the only way it could. And and I think that's regrettable. Again, I think we have to decide whether or not we're going to do these types of cases at all. In my view, there's appropriate times to do it and inappropriate times to do it. And this policy, despite the uh, exception that Carrie noted, doesn't leave a lot of room to do it at all. But yes, Ben, we were stuck once um, President Biden weighed in and the department reacted in the way that I thought it would. But again, I don't know that what happened under the Trump administration was directed by politicals. There is a very ordinary career-oriented process for approving media subpoenas. Um, I was part of it both as an AUSA and as a political appointee at the Department of Justice. It's careful. It's thoughtful. It is as it should be. Uh, And I don't know whether or not it was corrupted in the last administration. I'd like to answer that question first. Well, that brings us to one of the biggest legacies from the Trump era that the Justice Department is continuing to wrestle with. And that is the fallout from the January 6th insurrection. We're seeing the Justice Department, of course, pursue an array of criminal prosecutions against various people involved, a number of cases that's probably too voluminous to really do much with uh, in the time left to us on this podcast. But of course, we are now seeing a congressional investigation and efforts to move forward to clarify the facts of what happened and perhaps move towards accountability of a different sort through that venue. And we've seen the Justice Department take some interesting positions here. We've seen a memorandum issue in regards to civil litigation, I should say, um, involving 
Congressman Mo Brooks, suggesting that, in fact, his participation in the rally before the January 6th insurrection did not constitute part of his official duties as a congressman, and therefore he was not entitled to immunity and being represented by the United States under the Westfall Act. And we've also seen the Justice Department come out and indicate that they don't see any barriers to participation by former administration officials in the inquiry that's being led by a select committee formed in the House into the January 6th events. So, Ben, let me turn to you on this first. What does this tell you? What are what are the big lessons that we should take away from these first few steps that the Justice Department is pursuing, opening the door to this sort of accountability, particularly in relation to the select committee and civil litigation? And where do we think this is going to lead? What additional steps should we see? And, and does it give us a sign of how the Justice Department is going to navigate the traditional equities around executive branch privilege, executive privilege, executive branch information as this inquiry moves forward? Yeah. So I, first of all, I think the civil litigation questions are though they've been high profile and much commented upon, much less important than the questions of the interaction between the department and the congressional committee. The reason is that in the last administration, the Justice Department was very energetic in trying to help witnesses uh, refuse to testify, giving witnesses direction on privilege that was, you know, frankly, adverse to the interests of the the investigating committees. And so as a preliminary matter, the Justice Department has said, hey, we're not doing that anymore. And we are not asserting privilege with respect to any executive communications around 1-6. And that opens up, basically tells the uh, potential witnesses, if you get called by the committee, you are really on your own if you decide to resist. That in turn raises a second question, which I I think has not been much discussed, but I think is the really important question, which is, will the department actively intervene on behalf of the 1-6 committee? And the way that would happen is the following. Witness A receives a subpoena and refuses to comply with it. In the normal process, the committee does not go to court to enforce the subpoena. It holds the person in contempt of Congress, and Congress passes a resolution of contempt and refers that to the Justice Department for prosecution. This did not happen during the Trump administration because everybody knew that the U.S. Attorney's Office would take no action with respect to such a resolution. And the question I think that's really a lot rides on is what will be the institutional posture of the Justice Department to such a thing if it were to happen today? So imagine a subpoena to Donald Trump. Donald Trump defies the subpoena or Jim Jordan defies the subpoena. The House holds him in contempt and sends it over to the U.S. Attorney's Office. What does the U.S. Attorney's Office do with that? And I think that's like one of the big questions that we're going to confront over a relatively short period of time as witnesses to one degree or another do not satisfy the committee with either the truthfulness of their testimony or the fact of their testimony. Carrie, let me turn to you as somebody who's been closely following a variety of kind of accountability measures related to the prior administration and now the January 6th insurrection. From your experience with the Justice Department, the needs that we expect for the Select Committee, is Ben right that we're seeing some signals about potential cooperation with the Justice Department? And and perhaps more importantly, what are going to be the limits of that cooperation? Because that's the question that's lurking behind this, that the Justice Department doesn't really have an incentive to telegraph for political reasons until they actually become real, until they're faced with the prospect of actually having to cross some sort of internal line. Where might those lines lie? Well, I think there's always been sort of two different lines of accountability for January 6th. One is the criminal accountability, the you know, the criminal prosecution of individuals who participated in the attack on the Capitol and and the transfer of power. And that part which is led by the Justice Department through its criminal prosecutorial uh, mechanisms, I always had confidence would would proceed. And we're seeing that in terms of the 
various charges that are brought against people and the and the massive investigation, nationwide investigation that the Justice Department is conducting and as those prosecutions un, unfold. The harder part was always going to be the political accountability and then the accountability for people who are at the intersection of the political accountability and potentially had involvement or coordination. And so that pertains to potentially members of Congress who had knowledge of or contacts with individuals who planned or participated or inspired the events of January 6th. So it's that political accountability part that's always going to be harder. I view the January 6th select committee as number one, the last best opportunity to provide an authoritative historical narrative of what took place. And I think that that is the primary role that this committee will effectively be able to complete. And I think it demonstrated that through the first hearing that it conducted with the four officers last month in terms of providing their firsthand testimony to the physical and mental struggle and fight that they had to engage in to hold off the attackers on January 6th. The Justice Department will want to, first of all, protect the equities of its criminal prosecutions. And so it's not going to make any decisions that, uh, as it relates to the select committee's work, that's going to interfere with that prosecution. As to Ben's question regarding the Justice Department's role in contempt, if the Justice Department goes in that direction and decides to be willing to enforce contempt, I could see that more playing out as it relates to the former Justice Department employees that it has issued the memo release, you know, saying that they can testify. I think that is a much harder decision. And I think less likely as it relates to members of Congress, because then it will get into various separation of powers issues. So I think the Justice Department will play more of a role when it pertains to former executive branch or even current, to the extent that there were any career people involved or knowledgeable. It'll play more of a role as it pertains to them than it than it necessarily will as it pertains to members of Congress. The members of Congress participating as witnesses in the January 6th committee investigation is going to be the last and hardest piece to achieve. Chuck, let me come to you last. This point about executive branch officials, I think, is is a real one, because I think that gets at this question to say, what are the limits that the Justice Department may encounter one day, depending on the scope of the January 6th inquiry? And it's worth noting, of course, you know, they are members of the same party between the House leadership and the administration. There's lots of opportunities for them to de-conflict unofficially before anything really comes to a loggerhead. So to some extent, it may be unlikely that we're ever going to hit those limits. But how is the Justice Department situated itself to address them? And I'll, I'll note one thing that I thought was an interesting aspect of actually the Mo Brooks memo that might have ramifications for this here. In finding the Mo, that Mo Brooks's participation in the January 6th rally was not part of his official duties, the Justice Department actually cited an office legal counsel opinion relating to the line drawn for Hatch Act purposes for executive branch officials, specifically White House officials, as to what activities are political uh, and what activities are part of their official duties for Hatch Act reimburse and funding related sort of funding purposes and appropriations purposes. And if I'm not mistaken, I actually believe that same precedent, OLC precedent, is actually cited in cases about executive privilege as well. Um, I'm not 100% positive, but I believe that's the case. So is that actually an indicator about where the line is? Has the Justice Department plausibly said, yeah, the January 6th rally participation in there by executive branch officials or in the planning for it, activities around it, that's political activity. So our vested interest there is much less. Or is it still going to face some heartburn about areas in which the the 1-6 inquiry is going to want to push? Yeah, you know, I'm not sure that the Mo Brooks memo really gives us a lot of guidance about what's going to happen down the road with executive branch officials or uh, with the interaction between the White House and the Justice Department. To me, Brooks was a relatively easy call. It fell on the other side of the line. 
it would be hard to articulate a basis for why his comments inciting a riot uh, fell within the scope of his official duties. I don't think of it as a great predictor. But Scott, if you don't mind, I wanted to back up just a little bit and comment on something Carrie said. I think she's absolutely right that the select committee is our last best hope for an historical accounting of what happened on January 6th. It seems to be the last hope because I can't imagine anything coming after it. And it seems to be the best hope, but only by default. You know, I recently picked up the 9-11 commission report and uh, I, I, I have students in my class that I teach read uh, excerpts from it, but I reread the preface and the preface is really interesting. About 14 months after the uh, attacks uh, on September 11th, 2001, Congress passed the statute which um, created the um, 9-11 Commission, and Republicans appointed five members and Democrats appointed five members, uh, and those 10 men and women came together and issued a stunningly good report, having interviewed 1,200 witnesses and reviewed millions of documents, and without dissent. There was no minority report. There was no dissenting report. There was just a single report, and all 10 um, individuals uh, agreed to it, which seems like um, a relic, not something likely to repeat itself anytime soon. And moreover, they write in the preface uh, that they were working during a time of, and this is a quote, great partisan divide. Uh, so you know, great partisan divides are not unique to 2021 either. And uh, they also noted in the preface that they came to the table with strongly held opinions, certain views about what happened and what ought to happen, but they listened to each other, they debated, and oh my God, they occasionally changed their minds by listening. And that seems like a relic of the past too. And so while I think Carrie is right, this is our last best hope, it's not a particularly good hope uh, that we're going to have anything even approaching the 9-11 Commission's work. And that is deeply regrettable, given what happened on January 6th. And it's deeply regrettable, given the need for a true bipartisan historical accounting. We're not going to get it. And um, that is, I think, really, really a shame. Well, we will have to leave the conversation there. Carrie Cordero, Chuck Rosenberg, and Benjamin Wittes, thank you for joining us here today on the Lawfare Podcast. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is Hamza Situ of Goat Rodeo. You need to do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast. There are still people out there who do not know the Lawfare Podcast exists. You can change that. Bring them into the light. Share us on all the socials. Leave us a rating or review wherever you found us. Buy our merch at thelawfarestore.com. The Lawfare Podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.